Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Salvation is a miracle. And miracles have kind of fallen on hard times in a modern society. A lot of people cast aspersions on the notion of miracles, but anybody who's a Christian should come to terms with the reality, and I'm sure that all of you have, This may be just a point of reminder here, but everybody's got to come to terms with the reality that when you're a Christian, you are not a pure naturalist. You are not a materialist. You don't think the entirety of this world can be explained through the forces of nature and the observations of science. You believe there is a broader realm that is the supernatural and spiritual realm wherein God dwells and has rule and dominion over the things of nature. We should not mistake the idea that because science over the years overturned some bogus claims that bad religion was making about the origin of certain things or or various things that go on, we shouldn't mistake that for the notion that science has therefore overturned every aspect of religion or every aspect of the Christian faith, that's just simply not true. That just means that there are Christian people running around making assertions about the Bible that weren't really biblical. And, you know, science has discovered that that was not the case in many instances, maybe having to do with cosmology, how the planets interact with each other and these sorts of things. That just means that And guess what? People in religion, from as far back as you can go, are teaching things that are completely bogus under the name of religion, right? It doesn't overturn the entire matter just because they found some observations that were incorrect and and can be explained through science. I heard someone this week talking about the notion of miracles and, you know, how, well, you Christians believe God created the world through a miracle, right? But the, the most prominent position, the very popular position among scientists and physicists today that's gained a lot of traction is the idea that the world created itself out of nothing. Now, let's take the supernatural completely off the table. Let's just be, all be materialists here for a moment. We are pure naturalists. We don't believe there is a spiritual realm and there's only the natural world. If you believe that nothing is what we started with, and what we have here today is everything you see here today, you believe in a miracle every bit as much as people in religion do. You follow that? So if you feel like science is really coming down hard on you, putting you in a tough spot, the reality of it is the physicists of this world who are now saying that everything came out of nothing, they're in the same dilemma that they're trying to put you in. They just don't have a God to account for this, how nothing became something, right? Literally what they're teaching at the core of the beginning of their ontology, how we all came into being here, is total nonsense. It is something came out of nothing. That's a miraculous event. And they have no God to account for it, right? We say God, who inhabits this realm of the supernatural and has dominion over nature, He was the creator of nature. He certainly had the ability to do this. So we're both in the realm of miracles, are we not? But we have 
in Christianity a far more plausible and biblical substantiated proof for what we believe. God has told us that that's the way it happened. And that's why we stand on it. So the idea of miracles is often you know, raised up against us, I would say. But I think we have to learn to stand in it. We have to learn to embrace it and accept it. I started thinking about miracles and was doing a little investigation this week about the idea of miracles. And I think it's possible for Christian people to read the Bible and they say, well, it's just in the Old Testament, it was just miracles and miracles and miracles and miracles. It's just all the time, there's just miracles happening everywhere. But if you really do a little bit of analysis on the miracles of the Bible... It doesn't really pan out that way. And what you find is that there's a couple of eras in the Bible where there were kind of a lot of miracles, and then some miracles sprinkled in between that were relatively rare, and then there was the time of Christ. So you've got this first era, they call it the early miracles, right? This is stuff that occurred like in the, the first five books of the Bible, right? It's the creation story. It's all the stuff around the Exodus. And there were lots of miracles in Genesis and Exodus. And there's some in Leviticus and some of the other books in that early section. But if you think of that, that's like a mountain range, right? That's this mountain range that's maybe the, what is it, the ones in California, Sierra Madres or whatever. That's the big mountains out here in California. Then we've kind of got a valley that goes for a while. And then there's some miracles spread in there, some hills here and there, little miracles here and there, but they not that common until you get to like, uh, you know, Samuel and then the first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. You've got the ministry of Elijah and Elisha that had all these incredible miracles in it. So that's like a, that's like the Rocky Mountains ranges there. Right. But it's separated in time with a period of relatively sparse miracles. Now you're reading the Bible and it's hitting a lot of the miracles and stuff. Kind of gives you the impression that this is steadily going on through the whole time. But there's a pretty big separation from these early miracles. And then the time of the prophets like Elijah where there was an abundance of miracles going on then. And then it trails off again and there's onesies, twosies kind of things going on up until the ministry of Christ. And then you start seeing these, another mountain range. Maybe that's the Appalachians or whatever, if you're thinking about a map of the United States. But you've got vast stretches of time in between these, these periods of intense miracles where there weren't as many miracles. So that's one thing to think about. There were big separations in the, in the abundance of miracles that happened in the Old Testament. Now, you start thinking about it from the standpoint, well, how many people saw those miracles? How many people saw them? Some of those miracles may have only been known by a very few people. Take, for example, the creation. That's an enormous miracle in the Bible, right? And we have this story that tells us about it, but literally no one saw that miracle. We only know about it because it was published to us, right? And so you say, well, lots of people know about it because of the Bible. No, I'm talking about people who had actual firsthand knowledge, were standing there, saw the miracle take place, and said, I have seen a miracle. Nobody saw that one. And as you start going through and looking at the miracles, what you find is that many of those miracles were things that maybe several people saw them, But how many people actually realized, even of those that saw them, that's a miracle from God and not just some odd occurrence that happened, right? So there's a lot of miracles that fall into the category of just, these are onesie twosies, you know, things that maybe this one person understood 
and other people saw that it happened, but didn't really have a full understanding of it. You get up into the realm of when miracles were happening for the nation of Israel, let's say, when they're in Egyptian captivity, there's these plagues going on. You might say, you know, you hear estimates of, well, there were a million people in Israel at that time. Let's just take that number randomly. And let's pretend that every single one of them saw the miracles and they all understood this is a miracle from God. Well, that's a pretty big instance of a million people seeing the miracle. You might say, well, there might have been a million Egyptians who saw that and maybe they knew. Well, they may have seen what happened and not thought this is really a miracle from God. So they saw it, but they didn't, they didn't understand that. Well, it's just some bizarre natural occurrence, right? They didn't necessarily believe that was true. So with Egypt, you've got these instances where many of the Israelites saw these miracles. They at least had the information, right, through Moses' intercession and whatnot. And maybe through word of mouth, you know, they're hearing, they're seeing things going on. And, well, Moses said that this is what's happening. You know, there's a pillar of fire and, or there's a, there's a cloud and a pillar of fire and, the, and it's God that's leading us. And maybe that spreads throughout the camp. But even if you, if you think about how wayward is the Israelite people were, and you're playing that telephone game where, where you're spreading that out from the few that are in the, in the uh, Israelite leadership and they're telling people what are going on. By the time you get to the back of the camp, who knows what those people are hearing about what was going on. So you might even not have a million people there. But there's a bunch of, let's just call it a million people saw those. And there were a bunch of miracles, plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and all that stuff. Over the course of human history, if you start really breaking this down, you find that there's these clumps of miracles where there were a lot of them. And you find that in most instances, very few people actually saw these miracles. And even in the instances where you might have had a million Israelites who saw them, what does that look like if you take it as the numerator in a ratio of how many people have been on planet Earth, right? If you call it a million people, that saw miracles. Maybe it's 10 million people, right? But you put that over something like, how many people have been on earth? 10 billion people, right? And you start playing with those numbers, you start realizing that, okay, most of these miracles were clumped into times in past history, and only across the broad range of human society, you're talking about way less than one-tenth of one percent of people ever saw a miracle like that. You're talking about something that is relatively rare, right? Don't look back over the Old Testament and say they just knew about it. Everybody saw all these miracles. There's still relatively few people clumped into particular groups of time that actually saw these miracles happen, right? And yet the Christian faith relies upon this notion that miracles happen. And in fact, the salvation of your soul is a miraculous event, right? We believe those things, and there's three miracles I want us to look at today. Isaiah chapter 7 makes this statement, verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Now a sign here is a miracle. That's really what that means. It's not, it's not a road sign. It's not just a normal humdrum thing. A sign is like, wow, this is something extraordinary. It's something supernatural. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is a miracle. Now that is a prediction for what would happen in the future. That is a, a prophecy, if you will, of the birth of Christ. And it is a sign that a virgin shall bring forth a child. Now that is a sign indeed. You see what I'm saying? 
Many modernists who have gone back and tried to reinterpret the Bible and say, well, we've got a bad interpretation in the King James. We need to modernize it and we need to go revisit this matter. One of the places they attack is right here. Well, it really just means a young lady is going to conceive. Every single one of you, by the way, is a piece of evidence of that as a natural and regular occurrence in human existence. Right? It's not unusual. That in and of itself is not unusual. But a virgin conceiving a child is very unusual. It's the ultimate in unusual, is it not? And that's what we see here. We see this promise of a child being born. It's a miraculous birth. This is not your normal day-to-day birth. That wouldn't be much of a sign of anything. That would be things just going about the way they always go about and people having kids, and we see that going on all the time. This is a sign, and we pick up where Brother Randy took us to, Matthew chapter 1. And of course, this verse is probably being read in every pulpit of the primitive Baptists across the nation in the next week or so. <laughs> and he shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We read that all the time. That's one of the old touch points in the old Baptist church. But keep reading. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, see it's a prophecy, and he's referring back, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. That is a miracle. God manifest in the flesh. It is the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation. How on earth can God be born into a body of flesh? That is a miracle. You could discuss that all day long. You could get out the whiteboard and start trying to work the equations and figure out how it works. You're not going to get to the bottom of that one. It is a miracle. It's something only God could do, right? And it just flies right in the face of naturalism. Materialists are offended by it. They don't accept the idea that God has dominion over these things. They just say, that's impossible. Well, something out of nothing is impossible too. So, welcome to the party. We've got a God who can do these things, and you've got nothing. Admittedly, what you've got is nothing. That is a miracle. I could never possibly explain to you how that came to pass, or plumb the depths of it, or... Anything like that. I couldn't do it. I know that God can do it. He's told us that He did do it. And it is a miracle. It's the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. There's a lot made of the notion of Christmas in the world. And I am totally in support of anyone who wants to commemorate that the Lord of glory was born into this world by a virgin. But honestly... There's a whole lot of people celebrating Christmas today that if you got into their assemblies and asked them the truth about it, they'd say, well, I don't believe Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. <laughs> That's the testimony of the Bible. That's the sign. The Bible says, this is what's going to happen. A virgin shall bring forth a child. And then in the New Testament, it says, a virgin shall bring forth a child in fulfillment of what was said in the Old Testament. And this is where it happened. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian in the particular sense of believing the core doctrines of the Christian faith. 
You may have the name of Christianity. You may have all sorts of things going for you. You may have a whole lot of people following it. But this is very basic Christian doctrine. Jesus Christ was God with us. That is a miracle, and we believe it. Now, two other miracles I want to look at quickly. Penal substitution. You know, God's laws allow for a substitute. I've heard people get really upset over the difference between the two baseball leagues. One of them has a pinch hitter or a, what do they call it, designated hitter? Is that what it is? Because pitchers can't hit, so they bring in a guy to hit for the pitcher or something like that. I've heard some people say, that's just wrong. You shouldn't allow that. I won't take up the cause of trying to make a case for or against that, but I will just simply say this. Their rules allow for it. It's their league, and it's their rules. So whether you like it or not is of very little consequence. That's their rules, and that's how they're doing it. Now, God has His rules, and His rules allow for substitution. When it comes to the accounting of sin, if you have a worthy substitute, God can take advantage of that situation to accomplish His ends. And that's what Jesus Christ, the God-man, was. He was this worthy substitute who could come in and do for you what you could not do. He could give you His righteousness and the record of His perfect life and put it on your account. And all the sins that you had, He could put it on His account, and then He could put those things away. You say, Brother Dan, how do you explain that? I don't explain it, I just declare it. The Bible declares it. I can't imagine why God would want to do that for me. I might could imagine a little bit of why He would want to do it for some of y'all. That's because I'm not between your ears thinking all the things you're thinking all the time, but I'm stuck in this noggin right here, and it's bad enough in here. I know it's a mystery to me why God would want to do that. But the Bible declares it very plainly. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is that transaction. By the way, if Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin, the spotless Lamb of God, as He claims to be, he couldn't have done any of this, right? So if you've already given up on the first thing and Jesus Christ was just a man born of another man and woman just like any of us, He was a totally unworthy substitute, right? He couldn't do it. So you've got to have the first one. Lots of people talking about Jesus died on the cross for me. Well, I don't really think He was born of a virgin. Well, that Jesus that you're preaching is worthless to do the work that you're claiming He did for you. He can't save you any more than if I died for you. These things all lock together. You can't take part of it. And you know, I'm going to take the part that makes me seem sophisticated. I'll take that Jesus took my sins away. But I won't take that He was the spotless Lamb of God, born of a virgin. I won't take that. Well, that doesn't make any sense because the Bible plainly states that that's what happened and it is a miracle. If you're a Christian, you're going to have to become very comfortable with the idea of standing against the hostility of someone saying to you, what you believe is just a bunch of magical nonsense. Well, not exactly. Magic sounds like something out of a Disney movie. I'm talking about miracles from an omnipotent God as declared in the Holy Word of God. That's what I'm talking about. So they can pour contempt on it and try to make people feel foolish for believing this, but this is what the Bible declares. Verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us. How did he do that? I have no idea. I don't really understand all that. I know this much. He had to be born of a virgin. He had to be spotless. He had to be the worthy substitute. 
Those things are declared in the Word of God, but exactly how all that works out with God and how He's able to do it and how He's able to take on flesh and become the God-man, I don't understand all that. I just know that it's declared to us, for He hath made Him to be sin for us. Who did the making there? God did the making, right? You didn't make Him to be sin for you. That's what much of religion teaches today. If you'll do something, then you will make Jesus to be sin for you such that He'll eternally save you. It doesn't work that way. This is a work, and you have nothing to do with it. It's all something that God does. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. There He is, the perfect spotless Lamb of God. By the way, that's a miracle. If you don't affirm any other miracle of Jesus Christ, how can you not look at that one and say, well, I know my life. I know the lives of all my friends. I know the lives of my family. I know the lives of my parents and children and everybody I know at work. And I don't know a single one of them who meets to that qualification. They know no sin. That in and of itself is a miracle. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him? How's that done? Substitution. He took your punishment and put your sins away. He imputes His righteousness to you. you. Say, I'm not worthy. You're right. You say, I'm not deserving. That's right. Why would He do it for me? Why should He love me so? We sing that, right? I don't know, but He does. Maybe that's why eternity takes so long. Maybe it's going to take us that long to plumb the depths of why God would love us so much to do that. Because we're a wreck. We're a mess. And we could do nothing to save ourselves. This is the great Second miracle I want to put before you today. We've got the virgin birth. We've got to believe that. We've got penal substitution, the atonement. Jesus Christ took your penalty and He imputes to you His righteousness. I don't understand the mechanics of how that works, but I see it clearly declared in the Bible, and it is that upon which your salvation rests. If Jesus Christ was not the worthy Lamb of God, able to take your sins and impute to you His perfect righteousness, that He had a perfect obedience to God that He could put on your behalf, then none of this salvation stuff is going to work from a biblical perspective. So we have to embrace these truths. It's great that we remember a child born in a manger. But it's very important that we remember the nature of that child. That child was the God-man a perfect, sinless child. So we got the virgin birth, penal substitution in the atonement, yet another miracle. I guess I added a, another one that's kind of embedded in that, which is that Jesus Christ was without sin. That's a miracle. And then we've got a final one that's very important I made reference to this morning. Luke 24, 6. Okay, Brother Dan, I hear what you're saying. He was born of a virgin. I see that declared. It's hard for me to defend that before the wise and prudent of this world who uh, don't like it and might tease me about it. But I see it declared in the Word of God, and that's just the truth. So I'll stand in it. And I see that Christ was my substitute. He was sinless and perfect. And it's on the basis of Him that I stand righteous before God, not on the basis of me at all. But in Luke 24, 6, we see this. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how He spake unto you when He was yet in Galilee. Jesus Christ is risen. It seems that the world that's hostile towards Christianity 
wants to nip away at the bookends of the miracles I've set before you today. They really go after the virgin birth. Most people will kind of say, yeah, he died on a cross and that's kind of how I was saved. They got some kind of vague notion of a substitution going on there. Most Christian people will have some vague notion of that that they'll want to accept. But increasingly this last one, they're like, yeah, but he didn't rise out of the grave. That was a spiritual thing. It was not a physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. But again, this is the plain testimony of the Bible. He is not here but is risen, remember how He spake unto you when He was yet in Galilee. What does that mean? That means Jesus Christ told the disciples this is what's going to happen. Now that creates an additional problem for anyone who's going to say, well, I do believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I think He was worthy and all that, but I don't think He rose from the grave. This says He told people He was rising out of the grave. That does enormous damage to the character of Jesus Christ if you now say, yeah, but He didn't. You know what I'm saying? What you're saying is, my Savior is a liar. My Savior's a sinner, just like me. Yeah, he'd get a little excited in his ministry sometimes. Maybe he'd get a little carried away and tell people he was going to rise out of the dead. It's admitted that he told people that. If he didn't rise out of the dead, Jesus Christ is of no salvific benefit to you whatsoever. None. Zero. You can't play this guy. Oh, he's my Savior. I believe it. I'm going to heaven because of Jesus, but he didn't rise out of the grave. You got no hope of rising out of the grave if Jesus Christ didn't come out of the grave. There's three core miracles. You might say, well, how, is that really that important? Can't we just spiritualize this and just, you know, why do we make a big deal out of it? It's a big deal. Embracing the miracles of the gospel is really important. You think you're going to go to heaven someday? You have a trust in Jesus? Well, why do you think you're going to go to heaven if you don't think He can even come out of the grave? If Jesus Christ is not God manifest in the flesh, doesn't have the ability to rise out of the grave, what possible hope could you have of thinking you're ever going to rise out of the grave? It doesn't make any sense. You might as well think, Brother Dan died for me. He's going to pull me out of the grave someday. No, I'm going to be dirt snorkeling right next to you. Because I got no capacity to pull anybody out of the grave. You know why? Because it's a miracle. It's going to take an omnipotent, miracle-working God to accomplish this. And this is what the Christian faith is. We have a hope that's beyond this world. Paul makes a really big deal out of this in... Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I believe it is. And some people say, well, I believe all the Christian, I believe all this Christian stuff. You know, I'm not sure about the virgin birth. That seems very implausible to me. But I believe Jesus died for my sins and I'm, I'm going to go to heaven someday. But I'm not sure He rose out of the grave. That seems kind of ridiculous. Here's the funny thing about it. And I'll say this. I, this is maybe controversial. I believe it's far more difficult for Jesus Christ to have taken away your sins at Calvary in that miracle than it was to be born of a virgin or to rise from the grave. That's what I believe. They're all miracles. Maybe it's foolish to start talking about, well, is this miracle more difficult than others? They're all impossible without an omnipotent God. See what I'm saying? What I'm trying to point out here is that somehow people kind of take this middle miracle of Jesus died for my sins and put my sins away, and they kind of make that seem like, well, that doesn't, I mean... Yeah, that's what Jesus did. I guess it's a miracle, sure. 
but he can't do these other miracles. Well, why can't he do one and not the other? And why do we downgrade the one in the middle and then think, well, these other ones, are, that'd be too hard for God to do. You see what I'm saying? The point I'm making is that they're all miracles, and they're all plainly declared in the Bible, and you can't just play around with just a few of them and then drop some of them off because you think, well, that'll make me seem more sophisticated and acceptable at a social gathering, right? The wise and prudent of this world won't heap contempt upon me if I admit, well, I don't. Clearly, I'm a Christian, but I, and I know Jesus died for my sins, but I, I don't really think He came out of the grave. Paul had no time for that argument. He would not countenance this argument. It was totally ridiculous. And it's interesting to me that this is happening. This is in the first century, right? It's not like it took us 2,000 years of sophistication and science to get people to the point where they're bucking against this miracle. This is in the first century, Verse 12, now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now we looked at a passage that said Jesus was telling people He was rising out of the dead. So if He didn't rise out of the dead, He's a liar. That's a big problem. You got a liar dying on the cross for you. And well, the way I see it, if Jesus Christ was a liar, He's going to need somebody dying on the cross for Him. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. It says He was perfect, the spotless Lamb of God. He who knew no sin, it can't possibly be that. The Bible's very plain about it. This is what they're preaching. Now, if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead. In other words, I'm saying what Jesus said to His disciples, and that's what we're preaching going forward. Any departure from that is a departure from the faith once delivered to the saints, and it's happening all around you in Christianity. Open departure on this issue. But Paul, look at what Paul says. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Okay? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. We're telling you to put your faith in someone who couldn't pull himself out of the grave, even though he told everyone he was coming out of the grave. It's totally vain. The entire Christian religion, in Paul's mind here, hinges, the truth of the Christian faith hinges upon this fact. Jesus Christ is a risen Lord. Very important. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He hath raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Paul's saying we're preaching the risen Jesus Christ. That is the Christian faith. That's a core miracle of the Christian faith. And it is not up for debate. There's no debate on the matter. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, you don't believe in Christianity. You may have some nominal profession of Christianity. You may talk about Jesus and crosses and all sorts of things. But if you've stepped away from this very clear declaration that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, you don't believe the Christian faith. Scary to think that you could be dwelling in a world of Christianity surrounded by other Christians thinking that that's what the Christian faith is, and all the while you don't believe a fundamental tenet of the gospel upon which the entire Christian faith rests. Sometimes I think people get a little frustrated with old Baptist ministers because we're unyielding on certain things. I don't get that so much from other old Baptists. I think if you've been around us, you start to realize, hopefully if you've been paying attention, you start to realize, yeah, those things are true and they're important. 
But if you start talking with other Christians, and they'll get really uncomfortable about, why are you making such a big deal out of this? It's a big deal. It's the deal. It's the gospel. It's the only deal that's ever going to get you into glory. It's what Jesus Christ did, and He did it in keeping with His own testimony about how He did it. It's a big deal. The fact that someone would say, I don't think it's that big a deal, indicates that perhaps they've spoken more truly than they realize. It indicates that they haven't really understood a core aspect of the gospel. There's kind of an element in my life right now where I feel like we're heading into a season of departed loved ones. And as you begin to think about that, the hope of the resurrection is incredibly important in a way that as a younger man, I didn't really think it was. I wouldn't say that as a younger person, I would have ever said, I don't believe in the resurrection. I think I've, as a Christian, always believed that God works miracles and raises people out of the dead. But as you start seeing people close to you who are dying or nearing death, you start drawing closer to the hope that's in the resurrection. And what a wonderful thing that is. There's not any of us going to be here all that much longer. But we have a hope in Christ, and that hope is based in the resurrection. We're going to be reunited. Sometimes I look out here and I see you all and I think, oh, I don't know how many more times we're going to gather here. How many times am I going to see you? I don't know. But I think when I don't see you, that's not going to be the last time I see you. We're going to see each other in glory. And I won't be the one up here standing here talking to you. I'll be sitting out there with you. And the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be the one we've got our eyes on. There's a great hope in the resurrection. There's a great hope in the miracles. We think a lot about the miracle of the incarnation at this time of year, but I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ was not only born of a virgin, He was also your sinless and perfect substitute. And He has risen from the grave. And our hope rests in those three miracles. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.